welcome to you, Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Cool Hand Luke. A laid-back southern man is sentenced to two years in a rural prison, but refuses to conform. Accurate statement. This is our second movie in our 1967 series. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? Uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Like, I movie wanders a lot. I'm okay with that, honestly. But I never really feel like they're getting to like a real point. And then I feel like there's a lot of like build up and then like kind of nothing happens. I could definitely see it that way. For me, there's something bigger that Luke is an allegory for. I mean, like I, I can see that like there's this bigger thing of like there's a part of me that is kind of annoyed that I really don't really get the story about like what his deal is. Well, part of it is that everything's kind of mumbled through in this movie. And then there's just a lot of like nonsense talking. So it's really like, okay, so we really didn't know what his deal was before. And like, okay, well, whatever. This is just who this dude is. He ends up in jail. He's not going to let it define him. And he's just going to like mess with people while he's there because what else is he going to do? And there's a part of that that I enjoy because in terms of a prison movie, it's not just prison is the worst yeah prison is the worst but it's that's not like the crux of the story (laughs) he will not bow to authority yeah ever at any cost yeah i get that i think there's a bigger story to be told i think you're right the movie wanders a little too much Mm -hmm. to keep that story concise yeah if you cut a little bit out of this movie and keep it moving then you really do get the point Mm -hmm. i mean one of the scenes I'm just going to say right now that you can throw out is the girl at the car or at least part of it, because what she's doing at that car isn't what's interesting. What's interesting is how they react and how Luke reacts to it. Mm -hmm. They all are becoming feral animals Mm -hmm. and he just stares going, she knows exactly what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And that's the important part of that. Yeah. He identifies what the game is and it's just like, no, no. She's there for her. Yeah. She's totally getting off on this. And and y'all y'all just don't realize it. And it's this little tiny nugget of what everybody else in this prison is doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he is driving the point home to all of them throughout this entire movie. It was like, y'all don't get it. You do everything they tell you to, and you still suffer. There's nothing you can do to appease them. Mm -hmm. So you might as well fight back. Yeah. Because what the hell else are you going to spend your time doing? Well, and like, I, I don't really see that, like, he spends all his time fighting back until he decides he's going to he's gonna escape. It's really more of like, I'm just going to mess with all these dudes. But then that gets boring. Like, it's fun for a while. And then it's like, all right, well, I've now they've they've been won over with my charm. So who, else, who am I going to mess with now? And there's an interesting subplot there of all the prisoners start to really take to him as this figurehead. Mm -hmm. But then when he could really actually use their help, nobody will stand up. No, because they're scared. Yeah. And, you know, status quo. They've been conditioned. I think this movie might work better as a play. Um, I could see that a little. It's it's got like one flew over those Cuckoo's Nest vibes in a little bit. And Cuckoo's Nest did it better. I've never seen the movie. Mm, okay. All um, right. We can add that to the list. Keep that noted. The budget for this film was $3.2 million. Okay. That's roughly equivalent to $24,650 today. Okay. So again, decent mid-sized it's a mid-sized movie. film. 
It made sixteen million two hundred twenty thousand, about one hundred twenty-five million in today's money. Okay, that's that's a good return. It did really well, and I can understand why. You have the star power of Paul Newman mm-hmm. playing a very different role for him at this point in his career, mm-hmm. and a story that's definitely unique. Yes, I mean, I will say, I don't think there's many stories quite like this in movies. Not that it's necessarily good all the time, but it is different. I don't know how different it is. Ah, uh, the only times I've seen anything similar are when you do you have something like Stalag Seventeen, where it's a prisoners of war movie mm-hmm. or The Great Escape, and a lot of times we've done it where you know we're in wartime and they're in a prison camp. But I don't, I don't think anybody written a story like this where it's in an actual southern prison camp. Well. That's like the way you're just setting, but when you're talking about the story, like the crux of the film is that you have a dude who's in some shitty circumstances and he's not going to let it break him. Yeah, that's fair. Like that is a very common, like that's just a common film trope. That's what keeps this movie from just being a loose collection of vignettes of a guy not doing what people tell him to do. Yeah. Is that there's there's a compelling universal through line at the middle of it. Well, and maybe if they had had like some more examples of him as a, just a free person not obeying authority, it would have made a little more sense. Yeah, there, there's just something missing from the middle of this film. Yes. Our writers, we first have Don Pierce. He got a screenplay credit, but wrote the novel that this is based off of. Okay. And it was based off his experience as a chain gang prisoner for two years. Interesting. Now, he was not Luke. Okay. And he is very adamant about saying that when he talked about it. Okay. He received $6,500 for the book, $65,000 for the film rights, and $15,000 for the first draft of the script. Okay. Which, you know what? Not bad. That's that's not horrible in 1967 money. But Mm -hmm. Don Pierce did not like Paul Newman as the lead for this movie. Ooh. And the fact that Paul Newman made $750,000 playing this role. Yeah, I wouldn't really like that either. He thought Paul Newman was too scrawny to play Luke. Okay. And was not a big fan of the film. Quote, I seem to be the only guy in the United States who doesn't like the movie. Everyone had a whack at it. They screwed it up 99 different ways. Hmm. He actually received a full pardon by the governor and the cabinet of the state of Florida in 1970 Mm -hmm. after writing this book. Interesting. And detailing some of the bad prison situations. Mm -hmm. And his model for Luke is believed to be a safe cracker named Graham Garrison, who is credited for stealing about four to five million dollars during his career. Hmm. For the actual screenplay and the movie credit, we have Frank Pearson. Before this, he wrote Have Gun Will Travel, Cat Baloo, The Happening in 1967. After this, Nichols, Dog Day Afternoon, 1978's A Star is Born and Presumed Innocent. Okay. Pretty good stuff there. And then uncredited and didn't do a whole lot else besides this movie was Hal Dresner. Just throwing his name out there. Okay. What do you think of the writing? It's okay. Like, I think there's some connective tissue there that we've said that is lacking in the story. But I like the idea and I, I like, like, I do like the shenanigans. I think some of like, What's his, the guy who just never shuts up? The guy who gives the nicknames. Dragline. Dragline. He needed to be a little different, in my opinion. I think he needed to be punchier. Because for a guy who never shuts up, he's not very funny. And in that kind of position, 
You should at least be a little funny. Oh, oh, oh. That there's the champion hog gun in this camp. Hell, I seen him eat ten chocolate bars and seven cold drinks in 15 minutes. He can eat busted bottles and rusty nails any damn thing. If you be so kind to let me cut off your Yankee head, he'll eat me that. <laughs> I can eat 50 eggs. Nobody can eat 58. You just said he could eat anything. You ever eat 58? Nobody ever eats 58. Hey, Babalugat, we got a bet here. Well, the thing for me, though, is Dragline is physically imposing. Yes. And I kind of like the fact that he isn't the funniest guy in the room. But there is, like, no funny guy, really. Like, the Dennis Hopper character tries to be a little bit. Well, Babalugat just comes off as weird he comes off as somebody who needs to be in a different kind of institution yeah which i also don't love no there's something off about the way like dragline's position because if he's just supposed to be imposing fine but then where's the funny guy like there should have been a more like specific funny dude yeah i don't know if it's that they've they all feel super broken Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what's hard to see and i also wonder if there's just a little bit of a cultural barrier there that this was like 50 plus years ago and that, you know, this is a guy from Louisiana who's been on a chain gang for five years in the 60s. I wonder if there's a little bit of just distance where like, I don't understand this character without more context. And this movie, to its credit and detriment, does not allow you any context. It throws you right in, which I'm like, on the one hand, I appreciate. I appreciate the fact that you're just like, you're here. Get used to it. Yeah, but Kubrick rule. <laughs> Kubrick rule and also that that stunts some of the character development of these other characters. Yep. I think that's the only frustrating part. Well, and also that just you didn't put the context in your movie, so yeah. it makes it like, why is Luke this way? Why is Luke chopping off the top of the parking meters when we meet him? Like, clearly he's drunk, but that can't be the only reason why he's doing this. So near the end... When he's doing his prayer, he kind of talks about it. Mm-hmm. Hey, old man, you home tonight? Can you spare a minute? It's about time we had a little talk. I know I'm a pretty evil fella. Kill people in the war. I got drunk and chewed up municipal property and the like. I know I got no call to ask for much, but even so, you got to admit you ain't dealt me no cards in a long time. About coming home from the war and not feeling like anything matters. And he sort of touches on it. But I think the whole point is like he came back scarred and decided authority does not mean shit. Why am I bothering to pay attention to it? And so I think there's this sort of symbolic nature of him that he's cutting off the heads of parking meters specifically because... It's the man. Mm-hmm. It's authority. And he hates it. Like, yeah, but again, we, we needed more of that stuff because it's just so jarring. You're like, okay, he's drunk. He just did this stupid thing, but it still doesn't make sense. Yeah. They play it for subtlety, which is okay. Here's the thing. It's okay, but they should have explained it a lot more. Like when people start asking him, so why are you in here? What did you do? That's what you did. Why do you, did you get a bad ticket and you were on a bender? Like it should have been like more specific 
about I fucking hate the cops. I fucking hate all establishment and authority because that also then explains all this shit he's been doing. Yeah. Like that conversation should have come in like just before he gets put in the hole. And it doesn't have to be that long. No, it has to be all the guys are trying to figure out what it is he did and he won't tell them. And finally, like a guard lets it slip. Like what, what was the thing that got him in jail? They're like, why were you, why did you do this? And then, that would then be the piece that explains why he is this way in prison. Yeah. And then he when he ends up in the hole, it's like, holy shit. Like, like then it's a bigger deal. Yeah. That would have been a better payoff. See, I fixed the movie. I should be in charge of everything. <laughs> they they did not raise the stakes enough. I am such a I'm such a good editor. Yeah. In my mind. <laughs> Our director, Stuart Rosenberg. Before this, he did lots of TV, including several lengthy runs on The Untouchables, Naked City, and The Defenders. After this, he did three more movies with Paul Newman, WUSA, Pocket Money, and The Drowning Pool. And he also did The Laughing Policeman, Voyage of the Damned, The Amityville Horror, Brubaker, and The Pope of Greenwich Village. Hmm. The direction's fine. Like, it's serviceable. There's there's nothing special about it. There's not. There are times where it gets really theatrical, mm-hmm. kind of out of nowhere. I do like this. Like, I really like how they did, like, him on the run. Like, that, the filming of him jumping over the fence all the different ways was really cool. And I, I liked that a lot. There's that, you know, a lot of the, the composition decisions, having Paul Newman laying down as Jesus Christ after finishing 50 eggs mm-hmm. is such a good image. It's pretty funny. <laughs> like there are some near perfect shots in this movie. Yeah, that one's pretty. Yeah, that one's pretty good. When he's down on the ground after they bring him back the second time and mm-hmm. he's yelling at everybody and they all turn to face straight ahead on their bunks. Mm-hmm. So it's all lined up and he's just down on the floor. Yeah. Like there's so many shots like that throughout the movie. And that's where I think his touch really works. Mm-hmm. And what also made me think, like, this would work so well as a play. Probably. Like, staging this would be amazing. Mm -hmm. One piece of trivia, he banned wives on set. Okay. Wanting to have the cast internalize the life of a chain gang. Okay. Which I kind of appreciate. But, yeah, I get that. Like, no hanky-panky on breaks, and, like, you're just going to be isolated. You are isolated and stuck out here. Yeah, I get get that a little bit. That's, like, not an abusive, like, like tactic that we've heard some from some other directors no it's just a it's just a very good like we need to have the right kind of energy here yeah we want to keep that element as a part of our set yeah right on to probably the biggest thing about this movie and that is the acting Mm -hmm. and we start with the star paul newman Mm -hmm. as luke we've of course talked about paul newman before in slapshot and the sting yep other big giant movies because he's a legend, were movies like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Exodus, The Hustler, HUD, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Towering Inferno, Quintet, The Verdict, The Color of Money, The Hudsucker Proxy, Nobody's Fool, Road to Perdition, and of course, Cars. Oh yeah, I forget. He is in Cars. <laughs> what did you think of Paul Newman? He was really good. Yeah. I liked him a lot. Robert Redford still beats him out. I know, but those blue eyes. He does have those beautiful blue eyes. He is a very handsome man. I don't argue that, but he just doesn't do it for me the way that Robert Redford does. I feel you. I feel you. This is a different role for him. I mean, this is a little bit of a stretch at this point. Mm -hmm. I think what we see after, like the sting very much feels informed by this movie. Butch Cassidy feels informed by this movie. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, if you think about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, he's playing Brick. That's a very different kind of tension and role that he's been used to playing on stage Mm -hmm. and in movies. And now he's really taking on that essence of cool, even-headed lead. Yeah, he's just so apathetic about everything, which is good for his character. So that that's what feels so different. And it makes it all the more meaningful when he does show some emotion. Mm-hmm. Like when he sits down with that banjo mm-hmm. and you see the tears come out of his eyes, you're like, holy shit. Oh, they finally broke him. I was like, his mom's gone. Mm-hmm. That sucks. <laughs> Get yourself a sweetener done Dressed in rhinestone Setting on pedestal of abalone shell Going 90 I ain't scary Cause I got the Virgin Mary Assuring me that I won't go home That's the one thing that he cared about Yep Newman told Pierce and Pearson not to tailor the script for him He wanted to stretch his acting skills for this role good. He got inspired from the original novel and not the script. Cool. So he actually tried to use that to embody the character and traveled to West Virginia to record local accents and watch behavior in order to get an idea for his character. Oh, well, good. Good job doing your homework. Yeah. He feels like he has a natural Southern accent. It's not forced. It's not overdone. Yeah. Because usually, you know, usually when people start trying to do it, they go a real hard Real fat, and it just doesn't work. Because that's not how people talk in the South. People do talk that way. That's true. That's true. It's just when it is not your natural voice, it can feel real forced. Oh, my, yes. There's a really great story about playing Plastic Jesus. Mm -hmm. It was scheduled early for the shoot, but Newman wanted to actually learn how to play it. Okay. Rosenberg decided to delay the shooting for a few weeks. But he still couldn't get it down. And so finally they scheduled it for the second to last day of filming Mm -hmm. to get it right. And I believe he was working with, who we'll mention him later, Dean Stanton. He still could not get the shot perfect. And Newman and Rosenberg wound up in a shouting match. (laughs) Now, I don't think this was like just unbridled anger. This was super tense. Because Newman wanted to nail this moment. And he couldn't. And I'm sure Rosenberg is just like, we are burning daylight, dude. We have to get this done. Well, and it's also like you not doing it perfectly doesn't take like act it perfect. The other part is fine. Yeah. Like that's more important. And George Kennedy remembered that the entire room was tense, electrically charged, quiet Mm. when he played it for the last time. When he finished, Rosenberg just said, print and newman insisted he was like i could do it better i could and rosenberg said nobody could do it better and that and it's like you know what that take in the movie is fucking brilliant it's lovely and of course this is paul newman later said this is one of his favorite roles to play obviously because he just gets to be a jerk but he gets to be a smug asshole the whole time by saying nothing he does what's so cool though is that he does have those moments yes and it's so really fun to watch. Who could have been better? Jack Lemon was originally selected. Ooh. But after reading the script, he decided Paul Newman would be better, and he decided to jump on as producer. Ooh, I love Jack Lemon. And Telly Savalas 
was considered. He was also considered for the role of Dragline. That but, makes more sense. To but me. he was filming The Dirty Dozen mm. in Europe and refused to fly back to America for this movie. Okay. Tully Savalas doesn't make sense. I would have loved to see Jack Lemmon in this type of role. That would be fascinating. I mean, uh, go listen to our conversation about the apartment. <laughs> like, it's the best movie David have ever made me watch in my entire life, knowing him. Like, it really is one of my personal top fave movies from now on. Like, I love it <laughs> so much. How good. That's so awesome. I love it. <laughs> so I would love to see Jack Lemmon in more of that type of role. But Paul Newman's the best from that yeah. list. And Lemon rightfully figured that out. He's like, no, Paul needs to do this. I love that. All right, moving on. We have George Kennedy as Dragline. Mm-hmm. Before this, he did lots of television. Okay. Charade. Oh, okay. McHale's Navy, 1964. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Shenandoah, The Sons of Katie Elder, and The Flight of the Phoenix, and also The Dirty Dozen. Okay, yeah, we're going to be watching that later in the series. After this, he did Bandolero, The Boston Strangler, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Airport 1975, Earthquake, The Iger Sanction, Airport 77, Death on the Nile, Police Squad, all of the Naked Gun movies. Oh. This is where you would recognize him. Okay. Like, yeah, I, I knew I recognized him and I had seen him in stuff before, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. He is Leslie Nielsen's partner. Okay. In the Naked Gun series and Small Soldiers and View from the Top. Okay. Wait, View from the Top, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie? That's what it says. Was there an old man in that movie? Well, yeah. He's probably him. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm just trying to like, it's been a while since I've watched that movie and I love that movie. Uh, <laughs> it's so underrated. It's got Mark Ruffalo in it and Christina Applegate. And I've never seen it. <sighs> I own that movie. I know. <sighs> anyway. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Acting his ass off. Chewing yeah. up scenery. He's great. Like, my issues with his dialogue is has nothing to do with him. He's doing the perfect antithesis to Luke. And he does such a masterful job of it, especially near the end. I just love his, how he changes when he respects Luke. Yeah. When he, like, understands him. And it's like, that's my guy. But then, you know, finally comes to an understanding, especially when they're out in the forest. And he, he was like, you know, oh, you joked with him. He's like, no, they broke me. He's like, you don't get it. <laughs> That's why I'm running, because they fucking broke me. Mm -hmm. That's why I cannot go back. And like to see him finally go, oh, no. And broke Luke. He was our dude. Yeah. And he's heartbroken over it. Kennedy was so worried about how successful Camelot and Bonnie and Clyde were that year Mm -hmm. that he invested $5,000 of his own money in advertising to promote himself in this movie and his performance. I don't think you're allowed to do that anymore. You're not. We'll get into that a lot with the Oscars because there's a whole bunch of stuff that came up because of that. Mm. But I think the key here was like he knew the performance he'd given Mm -hmm. and he did not want it to go unnoticed. Okay. And it's just like. He didn't want it to get buried. No. I understand that. Next up, as the captain, Struther Martin. Before this, he was in The Asphalt Jungle, The Red Badge of Courage, 1954's A Star is Born, Kiss Me Deadly, The Shaggy Dog, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, McClintock, Shenandoah, and The Sons of Katie Elder. After this, The Wild Bunch, True Grit, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Rooster Cogburn, Slapshot, and Up in Smoke. Okay, he was in Slapshot. Our most hated movie of all time. I know. 
But he's in other good stuff. What do you think of the captain? I didn't really care. Uh, that's sad. It's like, oh, you're the jerk. Whatever. <laughs> it's just, it's like, instead of the captain, like, he's not a warden, he's the captain. It's the same placeholder spot. Yeah, the only thing about it that I think is interesting is that he makes him very soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. And that is not something we're used to seeing in a prison warden at this point. No. I think now it's become such a common trope of, like, the kind of quiet but sinister yeah. foreman. And of course, he gets that cemented this movie's legacy, which is... Uh, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Some man you just can't reach. The fact that he delivers that line so calmly, so plainly, and with that high twang... Mm-hmm. Right after he's literally whacked the shit out of Luke. Yep. And you're like, damn. Yeah, he's a sadistic fuck. I uh, know. Pearson had a full background story for why the captain, an uneducated redneck prison guard to most people, would authentically say the line, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Okay. The story was that he had to take criminology courses oh. to get promoted in the prison system. And he had learned more academic vocabulary as a part of that. Okay. But it turned out nobody questioned the line anyway <laughs> when they saw the film later. But Don Pierce didn't like it. He thought that his experience with the wardens and the people out there was like, nobody would talk like that. It's fair. But I can also get the behind, like, let's elevate him in a different way and, like, further that divide between him and the inmates. It just, it gives him that one notch up above the bosses. Yeah, that's and that's that's what you have to do. It can't just be that he doesn't wear the same uniform. He's not wearing those glasses. It's, no, I'm going to speak in a very educated manner. Even the prisoners don't speak that way. And finally, for our main cast, Joe Van Fleet as Arletta, Luke's mom. Mm-hmm. Before this, she was in East of Eden, gunfight at the OK Corral in 1965, Cinderella. And after this, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, and the gang that couldn't shoot straight. <laughs> Among lots of other roles. Those are just like the big ones. Mm-hmm. Arletta's visit had to be filmed in one day, but with eight pages of dialogue. Shit. They didn't think they were going to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. But because Van Fleet and Newman were stage trained, it went it. perfectly. Yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so long as the camera and the weather are working, let's do this. That's the thing that Paul Newman flies under the radar with sometimes mm-hmm. acting wise. It's like everybody forgets like he was a Meisner trained theater actor. So this has recently come up with Marriage Story on Netflix and people are just going crazy about like apparently there's this we have not watched it yet as of this recording like this 15 minute like two people in a, in a room talking and there's no there's no cut. And one of our friends tweeted, people freaking out of this are going to lose their fucking minds when they hear about live theater. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're wrong. I mean, it's so true. And it's funny, too, because it was like Paul Newman was sort of like the anti-Marlon Brando. Yeah, because he's not like annoyingly methody. Yeah. And here's the thing. Brando gave some brilliant performances, but like. Newman had a different style, Mm -hmm. but still incredibly rigid in his theatrical training and how he used it. Discipline. Yes. (laughs) Like, you can be disciplined without being a jerk. During her single day of shooting, Jovan Fleet would sit on a stump all the way away from everyone looking at her lines. She'd 
disassociated with everyone while she was trying to stay in character. Yeah, that makes sense, especially when like you literally have one day and you cannot like you can't waste time. And it's a really heavy duty scene. Yeah, it's a big scene. Like we we have a very short amount of time to get this done and get it right. Like so I can't I can't mess around. Sorry, I can't chit chat and be friendly. I gotta work work. And Harry Dean Stanton recalled that at one point she asked him to sing for her and it made her cry. No. Who could have been better? Mm. Betty Davis. Ooh, that would have been interesting. She refused because it was such a small role. Mm. But another legendary brassy actress who would have been really interesting. You get a lot more gravity with Jo Van Fleet in this role. She's very good. She does what she needs to do. And that's all you need from a role like that. You need to pack a punch and you need to see it all over your lead's face. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on to Arpons. We have Morgan Woodward as Boss Godfrey. Now, he's an Arpon mostly because of how he stayed in character the entire time for this movie. This is, of course, our mirrored sunglasses boss. Okay. He has one line in this whole movie, which is Luke fetched the rifle. Mm -hmm. The reason for this was Rosenberg didn't think that Woodward's voice matched his appearance, so he stripped out all of that character's dialogue, (laughs) and it worked. Well, that character is very menacing because he doesn't talk. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the nodding and like the obvious pointing towards things. No expression on his face. Well, and then you put that next to the captain, the the warden gentleman. It's so different. It's like this is the guy talking fancy and this is his muscle. And he described his character as a, quote, walking Mephistopheles, hmm. which I like. Moving on, as Carr... The bunk guy who works mm-hmm. at the prison. Yeah. Clifton James. It's Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, when you told me that, I just, like, had this these memories flooding back of Bond, and I just died. Man, <sighs> that was so good. If you want to hear us talk about that, you can go find our coverage of the Roger Moore Bond films from last year. Specifically, Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. Because yeah. Sheriff J.W. Pepper shows up in both. As the same character. I know. It's fabulous. We have, of course, Dennis Hopper as Baba Lugatz. Yep. We talked about him a little bit. Wayne Rogers as Gambler. This is the guy with the glasses and the curly hair. Mm -hmm. That is Trapper John from MASH (laughs) in an early role. Of course, we have Dean Stanton. Yeah. Now better known as Harry Dean Stanton. Rest in peace. Mr. 80s. As the Tramp. He's here mostly to sing. Yeah, that's all he does is sing. Which I love. Which, like, he passes out his first day, which is fine. But, yeah, his whole job is to be the guy who sings for everybody. And he's so good just doing that. He is very good. Charles Tyner as Boss Higgins. I think this is the older guy. I could be wrong. Anyway, we've talked about him before in both Harold and Maude and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Okay. Ralph White as Alibi. I'm not sure which one this is, but... He was John Walton Sr. on The Waltons. Oh. Joe Don Baker as Fixer. Mm-hmm. He actually does get a line in this movie. He's not credited, but he gets a he gets one little moment. This is super early in his career. As Sleepy James Gammon, you would know him as Coach Lou Brown for Major League. Oh, okay. And as the sheriff chasing around with the hounds, well, that would be Rance Howard, daddy of... Clint and Ron Howard. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I looked really closely when we got to that scene and I was like, yeah, he kind of does look like him. Yeah. There's a little bit of Opie there. Trivia. Trivia. 
During the road tarring sequence, the actors were actually putting blacktop along a stretch of the highway for the county. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, that's a weird community service project, but okay. I mean, it it is, and it's one of those things, too. It's like, you are actually going to feel this. We're going to do it. Let's do it. And then, okay. So, because I hadn't seen this movie before, and I, yes, I always knew that it was the voice of Paul Newman in Cars. It does make that whole thing that much funnier to oh me. Oh, my God. And I freaking love me some Cars. There are lots of moments in this movie where if you've never seen it before, there are some cues and, and cultural touchstones where it's like, oh, crap, I forgot this is in that movie. Yeah. So, yeah, that that made me really happy. The egg sequences required 200 hard-boiled eggs. Mm -hmm. But with the clever use of editing, Paul Newman only ate eight actual eggs. Oh, that's not horrible. That's really good cutting and editing there. Yeah, and then that's also probably like some tricks. Like, because he, like, they feed him and then he turns his back and then it's like, yeah, he just spit it out. Oh, yeah, of course. Which is cool. Like, I'm like, no shame. Like, please don't hurt yourself to film a stupid movie. But even with that, according to George Kennedy, after Rosenberg yelled cut, Newman immediately vomited into a trash can. Yeah. (laughs) Always have a bucket when you have to eat on screen. I don't care if you're all game for it. You need a bucket just in case. And apparently the rest of the eggs were consumed by the cast and crew, resulting in some extreme cases of flatulence the next day. Sure. (laughs) And, of fucking course, Jackass pulled the same stunt in a 2001 television episode. Oh, the eggs? They did the 50 eggs. Who, was it Steve-O? I don't have the details, but of course they fucking did that. Of course they did. Okay, and we love Jackass. We went and saw it for our anniversary one year. Jackass is amazing. I have no problem with those boys. They know what they signed up for. I know. That's why it's funny. That's the only reason it's funny. It's true. The opening sequence of this movie was filmed in Lodi, California. And after the filming, the city never replaced the meters. (laughs) For many years, you could see a block-long row of metal posts without parking meters in the middle of Lodi. That's hilarious. I love it. The prison camp was actually a fully constructed set. Yeah, that, that's the type of thing that makes sense. But they didn't use an existing prison camp. Mm-hmm. They built their own. It had 12 buildings, including a barracks, mess hall, warden's quarters, guard shack, and the dog kennels. A San Joaquin County building inspector thought that it was a migrant workers complex oh. and posted condemn notices all over the buildings for not being up to code. Well, I do appreciate that, too. (laughs) They got it that right. And then they shipped truckloads of Spanish moss from Louisiana to hang around the California trees. Oh, okay. To make it look like it was out in the swamp. Mm. In the pilot episode of Cheers, the regulars argue over the sweatiest movie ever made. They all agree it is Cool Hand Luke. Sweatiest movie ever made? The what? What movie did people sweat the most in? That's easy. Rocky II. No, no, not even close. Body Heat. Sweat City. Ben-Hur. The boys in that galley sweat like pigs. No, no, Alien. That's what... Alien! Buckets. This is the night before my wedding, and I'm in the middle of a sweat contest. Oh, Sumner. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. I've been sitting here listening to these men argue over the sweatiest movie ever made. Cool Hand Luke. Hey, that's <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I mean, other than Top Gun, I might agree. What about 
Castaway. Castaway's not very sweaty. Dirty, yes. Sweaty, not as much. Ooh, what about dirty dancing? There's a lot of sweaty going on there. That is that is definitely there. Mm. I don't know. There's some good choices, but yeah. I was like, if you're going to pick one, this is not a bad option. No, it's not. The Bloodhound Chase and exterior shots were shot in Jacksonville, Florida at Callahan Road Prison. Luke was played by a stuntman, and they were using actual dogs from the Florida Department of Corrections. No, oh, okay. Dragline and Luke's fight scene took three entire days to film, which makes sense based off of the shots that we see, Mm -hmm. but both were incredibly exhausted after it, particularly Newman, who kept having to fall onto hard ground over and over. Yeah, that would take it out of you. I never get the feeling that the actors are unsafe in this movie, but I do get the feeling that they are feeling the effects of everything. Yes. Which just informs their performances so well. Luke's prison number 37 is a reference to the verse Luke 137. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Mm. For years after filming, composer Lalo Schifrin was asked why he used the theme for eyewitness news for the movie. He would have to patiently explain that that show used the theme from this film for their television show. Yeah, that's funny. When a visitor arrived on set one day, Newman remarked, There's a good smell about this. We're going to have a good picture. (laughs) And director of photography Conrad L. Hall stated that the studio completely aggravated him, questioning his filming techniques. It was eventually explained that they thought he wasn't showcasing Newman's blue eyes enough. (laughs) He had to shoot one scene four different times before being judged to have shot the film, quote, correctly. Oh, God. (laughs) That's so stupid. And the cinematography in this movie is amazing. But still, it's so stupid. Uh, All right. Our awards. This was nominated for four Academy Awards. Okay. Best Actor for Paul Newman. Best Supporting Actor for George Kennedy. Best Original Score, Lalo Schifrin. Mm -hmm. And it is a very good score. Very interesting and unique for the time. And Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay. So we would normally talk about, like, did they deserve it? But since we're doing all of the movies from this particular year, we're going to save that and give the Oscar Awards their full coverage conversation when we're done watching them. Exactly. So that moves us on to ratings. Ratings. Oh, how many limbs are you going to shake at this movie? Oh, it's not going to be hard-boiled eggs. Mm, that's a good choice, but I kind of like throwing in shaking a limb here, boss. I'm going to give it three. I mean, it's got a good, it's good, it's just, it's a three. Like, it's nothing, like, spectacular. I don't think it's super hot shit like other people, but it's not bad. So it's a three. I'm going to give it a four. I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I connected with the themes a little bit. I would go with you two that it's not, I don't think it's a movie that everybody's going to resonate with, and that's fine, but I really did, and I really liked the performances and the little choices in this movie. So he does a great job of making very small, subtle choices that pack a huge impact. Yeah. And I really like watching that movie. So okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and give it a four. All right. Our next film. Ooh, our next film. I'm really excited about this. Not for the film necessarily, but for the discussion we're going to have about it. Oh, which one is this? We're going to watch Dr. Doolittle. Oh, cuss. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Gird your loins. This is going to be one hell of a ride. Should I just go ahead and get drunk for this? I don't think it's a bad idea. All right, so let's go talk about what we saw this week. 
All right. This week, we saw Uncut Gems. A charismatic New York City jeweler, always on the lookout for the next big score, makes a series of high-stakes bets that could lead to the windfall of a lifetime. So, like, we, this is one of the few films we had left to see that we knew was a potential contender for the Oscars. And that we were very, very interested in seeing. Yeah. Had a lot of buzz. Compelling trailer. Saw it. It's ambitious as hell. It is. I enjoyed watching the film. I understand why a lot of people hate it. And I also understand why a lot of people love it. I've seen a lot of people talk about really loving it, and I think there's an energy to this movie that feels different for a lot of people, mm-hmm. which I'm totally get. I think, you you know, this movie has a lot of shades of gray on how I think people can feel about it. It, it does. Adam Sandler is great. The real killer of this movie is Eric Bogosian. Holy shit, y'all. Uh, he's phenomenal. He's uh, the best part of the movie. Well, uh, he's very, very good. So is the woman who plays the girlfriend, who's pretty awesome. Adina Menzel's great, but she's not in the movie very much. You know, I I don't know how much play it's going to get at the Oscars, but, you know, those fuckers love it when some when comedian does something <laughs> dramatic. It kind of fizzled out once the new award stuff hit. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand that. This is this is a spirit award style movie. It is. But it is definitely leaving a mark for the Safdie brothers, who yes. have just sort of been building buzz and building buzz up until now. Yeah. This is very much an announcement, especially the fact that I saw it on the screen. It was like Scorsese produced. I was like, yeah, this feels like an early Scorsese movie. It does, but it does feel like a rough draft. Like, the script needs some work. You talk about an uncut gem. Like, this thing is rough around the edges. Yeah, and they made some choices. It's like, well, you're baby directors. <laughs> That's just the way it is. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still an interesting film. So go see it because it'll feel like it wades through. But man, the last 20 minutes of this movie, I'll be damned if I wasn't on the edge of my seat. Mm -hmm. Like it it does deliver. It was good. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.